Hey, a good Friday night school here for you, for me. It's really, it's all, it's all about me. But I was thinking today about imposter syndrome. Not a new subject for this show. But, you know, it seems like imposter syndrome has become more and more common. And maybe I'm biased. Maybe I have some kind of contemporary bias in that this is the only time period I've ever known. Uh, you know, even though it's tempting to pretend that I know what it was like to live before I was born, the reality is I have no idea. But I do feel that imposter syndrome has become more and more common, and there are just so many different options, and I know that that plays a role. There are so many different distractions, so many different interests and hobbies, ways to devote your time, ways to define yourself. Like you think about somebody who was a farmer and just a farmer their entire life. Does that person even have the the time or ability to feel some sort of existential crisis? I mean, if you were trying to explain imposter syndrome to that person, they'd probably just walk out the door and go start working the fields. Although, but to be fair, like I think... Even somebody in that situation might have the feeling that this isn't really me. This isn't really who I am. But there were less distractions, less options, less hobbies and interests. And I think part of the increase in imposter syndrome today comes from that. And you look at the way people define themselves. You know, look at the different identities. And I don't just mean the obvious identity, politics, identities. I even mean the way that people just identify themselves based on their interests. There are so many different novel types of people that you can be today that, of course, when you go to your job, you're going to think, you know, I'm not really this. And, you know, imposter syndrome comes up sometimes, too, with a lot of the time, actually, with when you've accomplished something or carved out some kind of niche for yourself, if people think you're something special, people often think, this can't really be me. These people think that I'm something I'm not. You know, I'm not successful, so I only know, I, I'm successful. I, I would give myself that. I'm successful in my own way. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. No, see, that's the thing. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say I'm not successful. Uh but anyway, it doesn't matter. Point being, though, it's like I've experienced that mainly socially. Like I've been in social groups where I think, oh, these people don't really know me. And that makes me feel not only like an imposter, but also like a criminal. Like I remember being at some, it was some sort of Christmas party that a friend was having. And it was a small group of people. And it felt very tribal. And the whole time I was kind of like, I, I didn't know I was a member of this tribe. It's nice that they like me and I like them, but I didn't, realize, I didn't quite realize that this was kind of a little tribe. And I don't feel like I belong to it. And I mean, that's a common feeling for me. Not that I feel at odds with people, but it's just I don't feel like I belong to that. I have a sense of imposter syndrome when I'm in situations like that where there's an element of social intimacy, but it doesn't feel like it's based on something that I actually identify myself with. And again, a farmer in 
1802 might not have had time to think about these things, guys. <laughs> Everything I just said. Imagine a farmer in 1802 saying that. So you can feel like an imposter in any number of different situations. You'll hear celebrities, successful people, outwardly successful people. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Outwardly successful You'll hear them talk about it, and they'll, they'll talk about meeting other famous people, people they admire as peers, and they kind of think to themselves, this can't really be me. I, don't, I, I can't possibly be somebody who's a peer of this famous person I admire. But I think most people relate to it with work, for example, where you have a job, and you, it's the fake it till you make it idea. When you start a new job, you almost always feel this way, where you think, okay, I don't really belong here. I don't actually know what's expected of me, and sometimes even what I'm doing. And so you feel like an imposter right away, and that's where fake it till you make it comes in. But you have to be careful with that. You have to be very careful with faking it till you make it, because you can start to believe it. Because the truth is, you're always faking it. You know, you're always faking it. It goes back to that illusory nature. And I, I used the example on here a while back of somebody I worked with who had previously worked for a, a very large cable and internet service provider that is notorious for its fees, its weird contracts, and pretty much misanthropic policies. I mean, why don't we just call it what it is? A lot of these policies that large corporations and companies have, they're misanthropic. They're designed to hurt you. They don't consider the person ever. And I'm not saying they're inherently evil, but I think you can make a distinction between evil and misanthropy. And so everybody complains about this company. I'm not going to invoke their name because I feel like it's invoking a demon to say it. Demon. We'll call this large cable internet service provider Demon. <laughs> the Demon Company. But everybody has bad experiences with them. The company we were working for at this time had a lot of bad experiences with them. and I, and I But there was one time where I made a personal comment about this company, just about some trouble I was having with them. And it was very interesting because my coworker was a great person. It's nothing, this is not an indictment of them personally, but it was very interesting to me psychologically because this coworker got very defensive of that company, even though they no longer worked there. They hadn't worked there for many years, but they had previously worked there. And it was very interesting to see that employee come out of them in this moment where they suddenly started defending these really backward policies. And you know what? I get that. I think it's actually good to get that perspective. Like somebody who worked for that company justifying why that company has misanthropic policies, it's good for you to have that conversation because it tells me that, okay, this is how they justify it or this is how they see it within the company. This is at the very least how they teach their employees to accept what they're doing. To, to justify what they're doing. And that's up to a point, though. 
you know, that's only up to a point. Because I'm talking about a company that, I mean, the other, just even recently, because you, and the thing is, this company has a monopoly on the area, as many demons do. This company has a monopoly. Demons like to monopolize. And this company, though, I, I was looking into changing my plan recently, but I didn't do it because it would have involved a fee for changing my contract. There would be additional taxes for reasons I don't know. I guess because I'm making some kind of change. The transaction has additional taxes. The actual base price of the plan I was looking for is not accurate because they have to add on rental fees, equipment rental fees, all kinds of service fees maybe. I mean, you end up paying a substantial, a substantially higher amount. And you're misdirected and misled too because they tell you the plan is for something. And I'm, I'm not telling anybody anything they don't know here. But it's just one of those things where there's no justification for some of this. And they're making such massive profits. You know, it's not a service that, you know, it's not a service that demands the rates we pay at this point. But uh, so it was on my mind recently again because I was like, oh, yeah, they're still screwing you over. They're still screwing you over. But it was it was so strange to watch this coworker snap back into the mindset they had been in when they worked for that company and how deeply ingrained that perspective is. And you have to have that perspective. Like if you work for a company and you have to enforce shitty policies, a part of you has to believe it while you're doing it. But it can't become you. Because like, it sucks to feel like an imposter. It sucks to feel like you're being dishonest. So I think that's one of the reasons why people internalize some of that corporate logic sometimes. Because the alternative is to feel fake. It's to feel like an imposter. It might to feel like a bad person. So by taking on the entire philosophy of the company and believing it, you think that you're removing some kind of dissonance from your life. But you're actually becoming that much more dissonant. You're becoming that much more fake. But I understand why people do it. And you know, it's one of those things, too, that by repeating it over and over again, you might come to believe it. Like if you are constantly explaining, and it is explanation opposed to description, but if you're constantly explaining and justifying a bad policy and probably using nearly identical language each time, there's probably a script. That's the interesting thing about companies like that. It's like they, they use these scripts. Rather than get people who can communicate dynamically and still make the same point, they want people to read from a script so that the language is consistent. But if you repeat that often enough, that very well might enter your subconscious. And that's one of the areas that I actually agree with the censors on. I agree with the authoritarian censors that language has power. You know, when the modern left says, you know, basically, not words or violence, I, that's, that kind of hyperbole is terrible, but basically when they say that 
saying something out loud has an impact beyond just the fact that you're making a sound. And if it's repeated often enough, that can have, it, it can be internalized, not just individually, but a, an entire society can internalize something if they repeat something often enough. The subconscious of the entire culture can kind of take that on as it can start to believe it's real if they repeat it over and over again. I believe that, and that's kind of a Napoleon Hill idea. I mean, it is absolutely a Napoleon Hill idea, the idea that having a mantra, writing something down over and over again, repeating something to yourself. I mean, Napoleon Hill uses it in the classic self-help. I mean, he helped, he kind of helped create that idea, at least in, in America, the idea of like looking in the mirror, affirmations. You know, it's, it goes back to affirmations. A lot of cheesy self-help stuff is based on this where if you write down your goals every day and you write down the same goals, you embed those in your subconscious. And even if you're not thinking about those goals when you go about your life, if you've embedded them in your subconscious, you're more likely to make decisions that guide you closer to those goals because you believe them, because they're a part of you. And so you see that in self-help. Napoleon Hill, I, I feel, explained that extremely well. And it's where I actually agree with the authoritarian tendencies of the left. Not that, no, actually, no, that's wrong. I don't agree with the authoritarian tendencies of the left. I would say I understand the argument that words and language have immense power, especially when repeated and internalized. And they're internalized through repetition. I agree with that. However, I think you give words and language more power when you censor it. So I disagree with the authoritarian side of it. I acknowledge the power. I acknowledge that the argument they're making is rooted in a certain reality. But their solution to it is completely backward. It's, again, misanthropic. Censorship of any kind is misanthropy, in my opinion. Even if it's aimed at somebody who should be shut up, like even if it is the hypothetical person who's making inappropriate jokes at your grandma's funeral, to censor them is still misanthropy because they're a human being and you're shutting them down. Because that's a side of misanthropy that doesn't get talked about enough. It's Even if you're doing something to somebody who deserves it, that is still misanthropy. It is still a misanthropic act, even if it is somehow necessary or justified. Because that person is still human. The person who is doing something criminal or particularly disruptive or inappropriate and does need to be shut up or kicked out, that is still human behavior. And it is still... One, it, it, I feel like it still exists in the dimension of misanthropy to shut any human being down. I, I don't, I don't want to go too far into that. I'll think more about that later. But it does feel like there is something misanthropic about it. But the reality is there is necessary misanthropy. It doesn't make it more or less misanthropic. Because you're ultimately responding to a human being 
and not just an individual human being, but an, an entire set of behavior that many human beings act out. Because we all behave differently. Many of us think differently. It doesn't make us more or less human. It's like the argument I always make about serial killers. You don't want to go too far with the idea that these guys are monsters because then you lose all of the insight you get into the fact that these are human beings doing something that a very small group of human beings do that is terrible, but it's nonetheless part of the human experience. It's nonetheless part of human behavior, and there is a pattern to it, which is why we say serial killers not serial killer, as if there, imagine, there was this one serial killer. Throughout all of human history, there was just one serial killer. No, but because there are so many serial killers, it's a pattern. And if it's a pattern, we can say that that is a part of humanity. Even if it is a small, tiny, microscopic percentage, it is a part of it. And in that way, focusing too much on the fact that serial killers are monsters which has its place, like that argument, that way of framing things has its place, but you can't lose sight of the fact that they're human beings. But like I was saying, like when you repeat something over and over again, in that Napoleon Hill sense, you do embed it in your subconscious, and you very well might start to believe it is reality. And that can happen like with this person who worked for the large cable service provider, And I was just so taken aback that they were still years, I don't know if, it may have been 10 years since this person had worked for them. And this was an otherwise sane and nice person who I liked, who I liked. But when I was criticizing, and and I wasn't going off, it's not like I was going off on on just an unhinged rant. It was just that sort of thing where I was like, oh, I'm dealing with the demon. Oh, man, I... Just got off the phone with the demon company. You know, it was just, it was that sort of thing. Just an offhanded comment. And it was so crazy to me, though, that this sane and kind-hearted person, like something kicked in where that person who had deeply internalized that company's policies felt the need to justify those policies. And you can justify anything. And like I said, if you have to do that job, there's a part of you that has to believe that while you're doing it. But you should do that in that Odin sense, where it's like the idea that Odin in Norse mythology, when he takes on a different role, because Odin plays different roles, he appears as different characters, and when he does that, he fully embodies them. It's like a method actor. I mean, it is, it is method acting. You have to be kind of a method actor when you're having to do something you don't believe in. You have to pretend to be somebody who believes that. And that's what a method actor does. They actually pretend they are that person while they're doing it. But that takes discipline. Because not just to stay in character, but to be able to leave that character. And it's always weird, like with this coworker, that this person embodied the role of of this cable service company employee. But they didn't take the costume off. Like it stayed a part of them. And thinking about imposter syndrome in general, it kind of gets framed as if it's wrong, as if it's the product of anxiety, insecurity, 
a lack of confidence. Like the reason why you feel like an imposter is because you do not feel worthy or qualified to be the thing that you are either presenting yourself as or that people see you as. I think that's wrong. I mean, obviously that plays a role in it. I'm not saying that's not there, but I think that's the wrong way to look at it. And I, I think my, here's my take. I'll just say it. This, this is the simplest way I can boil it down, which is that imposter syndrome is an illustration of our illusory nature. Pretentious, but accurate, if you ask me. If you ask me, my own quote <laughs> is, is accurate, but... I think that is it. It's it's the Buddhist idea that everything is illusory. And imposter syndrome is an illustration of that. And you think about the word illustration. Think about the world you think about the world <laughs> the world. Think about the word illustration. Notice a relationship to the word illusory. Illustration, illusion. Illustration, illusion. No, but obviously those those words share a root. Illusion and illustration. And that's kind of what we feel we are when we experience imposter syndrome. We just kind of feel like an illustration of something. We feel like an illusion. Because we are. Because we, something inside of us knows that this is not the real us. Something inside of you knows that... I don't know what it's like to be a celebrity, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that something inside of a celebrity, especially before they've completely molded to that lifestyle when it's still relatively new to them, something inside of them says, this isn't real. Not only is this not real, my participation in it isn't completely real. I'm not completely this thing. And that's coming from inside of you, and it's the same thing you feel when you know that this job you're doing isn't you either. This isn't completely real. And I don't think it's any coincidence that everybody these days talks about, oh, we're we're living in a simulation. And I've gone on enough about how I disagree with that. How it's like you're reversing the order of things. You're reversing which is which. It's true. Life is like a simulation. But But a simulation is an illustration of life which is why they seem so similar sometimes. But don't forget the order that those go in. Life is bizarre and crazy. And when people are experiencing new events that are unpredictable, unexpected, just downright strange, as we're often experiencing now, which is why people are always like, are we living in a simulation? Oh, this happened. So-and-so did this, and it was totally unexpected. Are we living in a simulation? People forget that, like, you take for granted the fact that history is already established. And that same sensation of we're living in a simulation, 
has been experienced all throughout time. Anytime something novel occurs, especially if it impacts everybody, anytime that human beings experience novelty and life starts to get a little bit surreal, they're going to experience you know, doubts about the reality of it all. And they didn't use the word simulation hundreds of years ago. But I have to believe they still experience that sensation. And we look back, you know, I'm sure that there were people in World War II when Adolphus Fornicus Hitlerus took power in, you know, post-Weimar Germany. And people were probably sitting there thinking, I kind of feel like I'm living in a simulation. This is surreal. This is bizarre. They didn't have the word simulation, but I have to believe they experienced a similar sensation. Some people, I mean, just the concept of of global warfare, the fact that people are, all this new technology is available, societies were becoming industrialized, Japan can fly machines to the U.S. and attack Hawaii. You know, just the fact that all this stuff is even possible. There are tanks. That alone probably made people say, this doesn't feel real. Oh my God, this doesn't feel real. You know, that alone would would make people really question what reality is. But when people say today, like, I feel like we're living in a simulation, it's like simulations are an illustration of life. And that's why they seem so similar. But life itself is not a simulation. You know, it's funny to me, like people have an easier time believing that life is a simulation than they do believing in God today. It's just funny to me. I mean, and that, that tells me that people are looking for similar answers from a secular point of view. Whenever I hear someone bring up simulation theory... I'm always like, oh, this is a this is somebody with a secular viewpoint, a secular point of view, trying to come to terms with something that is ultimately spiritual in nature. And spirituality, I, you know, I'm not too attached to that word or idea because that itself might just be an illustration of the illusion as well. But I do believe that what I call spirituality, for lack of a better word, I wish I had a better word for it, I don't. I'm not going to, you think I'm going to, you think I'm such a genie? You think I'm a genie like Einstein who can invent new words? And that I'm going to come up, you think that I'm going to come up with a better word than spirituality to describe this phenomenon? I'd love it if I could. My ego would love it if I could, but that actually would be less spiritually sound. It's like I've said before, like, I'm not going to invite, <laughs> invite works too. I'm not going to invent a new word for God. I'm not going to invent a new word for love. I'm not going to invent a new word for spirituality. And despite the connotations those have, at some point it becomes a waste of time. At some point, you know, I, I feel like I would just be an even bigger imposter if I thought that I needed to invent brand new words for everything. I have enough problems. But when I hear people talk about simulations, I'm just like, oh yeah, this is because 
this is because you are reluctant to approach this from a spiritual perspective, and maybe not reluctant, maybe just you haven't experienced the same sensations. And I won't take that away from you. But it's it's really, it's getting your, your point of view is warped if you think that life is a simulation. When the reality is simulations are created to simulate life, to illustrate life. Always in a more limited capacity. But there are always similarities too. So yeah, going back to what I said a minute ago, you know, imposter syndrome to me is a deeper response than simply not feeling worthy, not feeling like you are the thing that people think you are, not thinking that you are the thing that you're expected to be for some specific obligation you have in life whether it's social, professional. Imposter syndrome is an illustration of the greater illusion that we participate in. And deep down, that's the problem. If it's even a problem. But deep down, that's the dilemma. It's knowing that it's not quite real. And you can trick yourself into thinking it is. Just like repeating something over and over again eventually embeds it in your subconscious. If you act out that role long enough, if you fake it till you make it long enough, you can actually convince yourself you've made it and you are that thing. But you have to remember that you're not. Because when you convince yourself that you are that thing... When you go from feeling like an imposter to feeling like you actually embody the thing that previously felt artificial, you're in for a shock because life will present so many situations that remove you from that, that take you out of that thinking. People have identity crises. And some of those identity crises, sounds awkward, crises, crises. No, some of those, you know, when you have an identity crisis, it's often the result of, you know, reality reminding you that what you thought was real isn't entirely real. Like when someone gets fired from a job, like a career, or, or an industry dries up. And we can see this now where there's, you know, industries dry up. Jobs go out of fashion. They get replaced. They, they change. Not every profession is always going to be around. And we can, we can see sometimes when people either lose their profession or a profession just kind of disappears from our society... Those people go through an identity crisis, and one of the reasons is not just the lack of income. It's not just that they no longer have a job or their skills are no longer appreciated. It's that they thought they were that thing, and our entire social dialogue is based on that. 
You know, as much as I love small talk, I've never been a fan of the question, so what do you do? What do you do? You know, just it, it, something about that always rubbed me the wrong way. So what do you do? What do you, what's, what, what, what's the illusion that you participate in? That's kind of what that question is to me. What's the illusion that you're participating in? And notice how that question tends to come from people. And I mean, people barely ask that anymore about, I don't know, probably like six or seven years ago, I ran into a kid that I hadn't seen since elementary school. I was visiting some people in my hometown and we went somewhere and ran into a guy that I hadn't seen for probably since I was 12 years old, realistically. And his first question was like, so what do you do? What do you do? And I wasn't insulted. I'm not an asshole, you know, despite how I might come across on here. Like, I'm, I'm really not an asshole to people if I can help it. So it wasn't like I was offended. You know, I just, I, I answered him or something. But it just seemed like, like this kid had been to my birthday parties and stuff. He, he, he was a funny kid. Like, he was a kid, he had a good sense of humor in the sense that, <laughs> he had a good sense of humor in that I remember him laughing at my stupid jokes when we were kids. My sense, my, my gauge on people's sense of humor is whether they think I'm funny. But it just, it felt like we could have talked about so much more. Like, it felt like we didn't need to be like, so how are you participating in the illusion? And I recognize I'm probably the asshole in that situation. But it just seems like we could have gone somewhere else, you know. It seems like we could have started out on a better foot than, so what do you do? But what I was going to say is that you notice how people who say that, tend to be not from the working classes. They tend to be from the professional class. They tend to be from the middle and upper professional classes. And it's no coincidence that I brought up a farmer in previous centuries as somebody who probably felt less imposter syndrome. And I think imposter syndrome, at least professionally, is most common with people who are in the middle to upper class professions. Because sometimes it's, it's hard to even understand what they do. It's hard to even understand like what it even is they do. Like they understood some fleeting manufactured system of policy it's kind of like the the uh, I almost said it I almost said the demon company's name but it's almost like somebody who is an executive or has some sort of managerial role at this big demonic cable service provider they're in that role because they understand the internal policies and the company's philosophy better than other people but that doesn't mean that that's real. It doesn't mean that that policy is actually real. They've just convinced themselves that that's the reality and they understand it. And a lot of upper to middle class jobs aren't that much different. Basically, it's somebody who figured out how something works in this very circumstantial context. Like they, they understand the policy even though that policy is itself the fakest thing in the world. 
And so you have this class of people who, at least, you know, in cliche social interactions among previous generations, thought that just the way to start a conversation was, so what do you do? And it's not the worst question in the world, okay? It's not the worst question in the world. But to me, it just, it forces you to live out that role. It forces you to approach even just organic social interactions from the point of view of the imposter. And I think our dissonance with that feeling, I think our feeling that we aren't the thing people think we are, that we aren't the thing that we individually think we are, that feeling of dissonance that we can trick ourselves into forgetting about. Because that's kind of what happens. Like, fake it till you make it. I mean, if we're talking about a skill, that's different. Like, fake it till you make it makes complete sense if it's like, I don't really know how to do this. So I'm going to pretend And by pretending enough, I'm actually going to get good at it. That could be creative. That could be drawing. I sometimes forget about that myself. Like I'll look back at old drawings I did when I was a teenager and they suck. They suck. And I forget that by simply repeating that process by drawing for years and years, even though I didn't think of it as practicing, But by doing it over and over again for years, just because I wanted to, I got better. I got better. Was I faking it till I make it? Uh, You know, I don't think I was ever really faking. No, you know what? I was. It was illustration. There we go. Drawing is rendering an illusion. You are illustrating. Illusion, illustrate. You know, you know, so it's, it's not that what I was doing was any more real than anything else. But anyway, my point about that was just that by repeating it, you get better. You know, I remember a job I had where I had to like stack books. I had to go around a warehouse with a a cart and I had to stack books, count them, and put them into boxes. And each box had to have a very specific amount of books. You know, the first day of work, it took me forever. You know, I I wasn't used to doing it. I knew what I had to do. I knew it was simple. But because I didn't want the supervisor to get on my case day one, I wanted my body language. I didn't want to look like somebody who was confused. I didn't want to look like somebody who wasn't good at counting and stacking books. But, you know, a week later, I was developing kind of a system for doing it where I was like, okay, if I grab, I can fit like five books in one hand. If I stack books, I can fit like five in one hand. So I can, I can stack them in fives and count them by fives. And that speeds up the process. And then you get good at that. Next thing you know, you're stacking books and counting them like it's nothing. You know, next thing you know, you're good at what you do. But you want to be careful when that's your identity. You want to be careful when you think that that's who you are. It's one thing if it's something tactile. It's one thing if it's something physical or even mental. If it is actually a skill. You know, I think that's a completely different situation. It's the identity. 
Because when people have imposter syndrome, it's based entirely around identity. It's not based on skill. It's not based on ability. Because you know that you can either do something or not. You know that you are capable of a certain skill or not. So you're not really going to have imposter syndrome over your ability to do something because it's obvious to you whether you know how to do it or not, whether you're good at it or not. It's the identity side of that that is so difficult. And people experience that socially. Like I said, I've had that experience of being at a get-together and thinking, oh man... I don't think these people know what I'm actually all about. Not that I expect them to know what I'm all about. I think they think I'm a I, I, I think I think that they think I'm all about something that I'm not all about. And as a result, I have to ask myself, why the heck am I here? Why the heck am I here? So it's something that we experience in any number of different situations. But to close this episode out, the point I want to hammer home is that imposter syndrome comes from a much deeper place. I believe it's spiritual in nature. I believe the reason we feel like imposters in so many different situations is because we know that we are participating in an illusion. And we convince ourselves that it comes from insecurity, anxiety, lack of confidence. But I think it actually comes from us intuitively, deeply understanding that this reality is temporary, that it's fleeting. That it doesn't actually define that part of ourselves that is at the bottom of everything that we are. It's at the core, rather, of everything that we are that we truly are. You can talk about spirits and souls, but your soul is going to know. And so if you want to get really silly about it, silly, but in my opinion, not entirely uh, wrong. When you feel imposter syndrome, that's your spirit communicating something to you. That's your spirit saying, Don't forget this isn't who you really are. Don't forget that this is just an illustration of the illusion. And it's okay to feel like an imposter. You don't want to be debilitated by that thought. Because I think that's one of the issues, is that when some people have imposter syndrome, it can feel debilitating. But you want to learn how to use it to your advantage. You want to be like Odin. Where you can embody these characters. You can show up. You know, Odin, there's a story. I can't remember what he, I can't even remember what he's investigating. But there's a story in Norse mythology where Odin is doing some kind of investigation. And he appears to somebody as a beggar. But it's not Odin dressed like a beggar. It's Odin is that beggar. He becomes that beggar. But he doesn't convince himself that that's who he is because he's Odin. 
He knows. Odin knows what he is. Odin knows. <laughs> Trust me. Odin knows what's real and what's not. Um, I don't mean to speak for Odin here, but I, I do. I, I I have to believe that if any god, <laughs> if any one of the Norse gods knows what's real and what's not, it's got to be one-eyed Odin. And so that approach has informed my life in the last few years. The idea that you can become that thing for a specific purpose. And life demands that of you. Human civilization demands that of you. Yeah, I should say that. Human civilization. I don't know that animals go through this. I don't know that trees go through this. But human civilization definitely demands that you play certain roles. And the dilemma of that is that you have to embody them while you're doing them in order to do them effectively. You have to play those roles effectively. Which is why we're so annoyed when there's an actor who seems more like the actor playing the character than the character itself. I saw that movie, Fantastic Beasts. I think I've only seen one of the, the Harry Potter movies. But an ex-girlfriend wanted to see Fantastic Beasts when it came out, which is part of the, the Harry Potter series. I enjoyed it. Actually, I, I genuinely enjoyed it. As I've said before, long before Jake Rowling, Jake Growling was a controversial figure like before she, before she became this controversial figure like Morrissey and so many others I've always acknowledged that she did an excellent job creating a world because I don't know shit I don't know shit about Harry Potter yet I do through cultural osmosis I know a lot I've seen one movie about it I've never read any of the books but watching Fantastic Beasts, I could immediately immerse myself in that world. That world. I could immediately place myself in that world. And I, and even like in my limited experience with Harry Potter, I have a feel for what that world is. It's kind of like The Simpsons. The Simpsons, I, I never really liked The Simpsons. I wouldn't even say I didn't like it or anything, but I just wasn't a Simpsons guy growing up. But it's another example of like they did a, a really beautiful job building that world like I had this experience as a kid of going over to a kid's house and he had a map of Springfield the Simpsons town he had this map on his wall of the town of Springfield and it was drawn of course in the Simpsons cartoon style and it showed like where the the convenience store is where this where the where Homer Simpson's house is it had all of the landmarks of Springfield on this map with like streets and stuff and it was small wasn't like some giant complex map. And like despite not really being into The Simpsons, I saw that and I was like, that's amazing. So I have this great appreciation for people who effectively build worlds because so many people fail at that. You know, Tolkien obviously did not fail. I mean, he's one of the best world builders ever. One of the best builders of worlds ever. And, uh, you know, Harry Potter feels the same way to me, even though I'm not into it. Like, I'm not a Harry Potter fan, but I, I think that 
it's a convincing illusion. That world is a convincing illusion, but the reason I'm talking about it is because when I saw Fantastic Beasts in the theater with my girlfriend, like, we both were really into it. We were both really enjoying this story, and for me, like, I had no attachment. I didn't go into it being like, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a Harry Potter fanatic. This better be good or I'm going to be disappointed. I couldn't have cared less if it sucked, honestly. I just wanted something fun to do with my girlfriend, and so we went out to that movie. So I had no investment. If it sucked, I probably just would have laughed at the fact that it sucked, but I found that it was a lot of fun. But then at the very end, they reveal that this one character is actually another character who's played by Johnny Depp. And when this character gets unmasked, it's like the final couple minutes of the movie. So you see Johnny Depp for just one scene. But when he was unmasked and it was Johnny Depp with like bleached hair, he looked like a Johnny Depp character. Even though he had a mustache and like bleached spiked hair or something, he he looked like a Johnny Depp. He looked like a modern Johnny Depp character. And both of us just, both of us were very upset. Both my girlfriend and I were very upset because we had enjoyed this entire ride. We'd, en- we'd enjoyed this entire movie. And all it took was, here's Johnny Depp. You know, that's because that's how it felt. And he's one of those actors where in modern years, you know, it wasn't always this way, I don't feel like with him. Maybe it was around the time that he started playing pirates and all that. Because I don't even have any problem with him. I have no issue. I, I I really have no issue with Johnny Depp. You can quote me on that. But he is one of those actors that can take you out of the movie. And seeing him did exactly that. It was like, it might as well have been, oh, it was all a dream. Like, you know how there's that cliche trope of, oh, this entire movie or this entire TV show, it was just a dream the entire time. And people hate that. People hate that. It's cheap. And that's sort of the effect that seeing Johnny Depp at the end of this movie had, where it's like they unmasked this other character who was played by another actor the entire movie, and you found out that he was secretly this evil magician who was pretending to be another person. And the evil magician, it's Johnny Depp looking and acting like Johnny Depp. It was basically the equivalent of, it was all a dream. Everything you just watched was bullshit. But it's kind of the same as, you know, having to play a certain role in life, where it's like when you watch a movie, you want to be immersed. You want to experience immersion. When the movie's over, you don't want to feel like you're still immersed in that movie. I mean, maybe if you're really into it. If you're really into it, you write fan fiction and you obsess over that world. But it's not like you want to live that out. Like when a movie you like that you were immersed in is over... You don't go, okay, well, you know, I really wish that was my entire life. I really wish that movie was everything. No, you recognize that even though you identified with the characters and that world while you were watching it, when the movie's over, you go about the rest of your life. I think that's kind of similar to the Odin idea, where it's like when you play a certain role... You don't identify deeply with that role, and I would argue that you you can't. 
I would argue that your spirit knows no matter what. No matter how much you trick yourself into thinking that this illusion you're participating in is really you, deep down your spirit knows that that's just a role. It might as well be mechanical. It's something you have to do. It's a process you have to act out. But like a movie being over, when you no longer have to play that role, you should just let it go. You should just move on from it. Because we live in a world where we live in a civilization, and this might be how it's always been, but we have so many different options and distractions and opportunities there's so much novelty available to us that we can easily convince ourselves we are all kinds of things that we aren't. And to me, that's worse than imposter syndrome. There's something truthful, there's something pure about imposter syndrome, and I don't think it's given enough credit. I don't think it's given enough spiritual credit. And if you read Buddhist texts, turns out it's all about this. It turns out it's all about imposter syndrome. And it's, it's very easy to become attached to that. Or, or rather, it's very easy to become attached to all of these other ways to define yourself. All of these other ways that you think make sense of the world. But here's the truth, and it's, it's that it's not just somebody believing, it's not just somebody internalizing the justifications that a large corporation uses for its company policy, like that demonic cable service provider I keep invoking. It's not just that you can start to believe those policies are a reflection of reality or somehow true you can easily look at life that way you can easily look at all kinds of different ideas and thoughts you have and convince yourself that they're true they might make sense just in the same way that working for a corporation you kind of have to believe in that policy or act out that policy you have to justify that policy you know, you have to do that with life too, but you can acknowledge that it's not the truth. It's not who you are. But the issue with imposter syndrome is that we feel like we don't have anything real to hold on to. <clears throat> so we grab hold of something because we think that not having an identity or being an imposter is worse than having something. And I wouldn't be able to say what's better and worse, but I would say you do have to grab hold of things. You do have to act out roles. You do have to believe in weird corporate policies. Laws. I mean, just living in a society, you have to believe in the laws of the society to a certain extent. Like when you sign a contract that has fine print, you might read that fine print and be like, this is bullshit. But if you're going to sign that contract 
You have to believe in that fine print. You're agreeing to it. You have to agree to all kinds of policies. You have to agree to all kinds of ideas just to be a human being. But you don't have to actually believe they're true. And that doesn't mean you have to be cynical. It just means you have to approach them circumstantially. You have to recognize that in this circumstance, I have to believe that in order to get this result. I have to be Odin. I have to actually be that beggar in order to conduct my investigation into what Loki did. <laughs> Whatever. I don't remember what the actual story is. It probably involved Loki doing something and Odin having to go talk to people to figure it all out. Detective Odin. That's, you know, when people say, like, putting on my detective hat, that's what that is. I'm putting on my detective hat to investigate. But you're going to take that detective hat off. That's a role you're playing. And so when you experience imposter syndrome, I think that's the approach you have to take, is that I have to use different identities and roles and actions and behaviors to function. But I have to remember that it's not truly me. And when I no longer... When, when, it, when the circumstances change, I have to be willing to let go of all those things. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can